Well, greetings, everyone, and welcome to Todd Talks, where our guest today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is a professor of history and an associate dean of graduate studies at Baylor University. Dr. Barr received her Bachelor of Arts from Baylor and her MA and PhD in medieval history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research is various and significant. She focuses on women and gender identity in late medieval England, how the advent of Protestantism affected women in Christianity, as well as medieval attitudes towards women in sermons across the Reformation era. Beth is the author of The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval England, and most recently, and the topic of Todd Talks today, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. I had the pleasure of receiving this volume in advance, reviewing it, endorsing it, and of this volume, I had this to say. I write, in this timely, valuable volume, written with pluck and aplomb, Barr shows that biblical womanhood is more a socio-historical construct than a scriptural prescription. I trust this deeply personal and purposely provocative book will be widely and carefully read, especially by those in patriarchal Protestant evangelical circles who will be tempted to dismiss it out of hand. Beth, what a joy to have you on Todd Talks today. Welcome. Thank you. It is fun to be here. So Beth, I wonder if we might uh, begin with just a pretty broad question, uh, namely, what prepared you to write uh, this volume, The Making of Biblical Womanhood? Yeah. So this, this is, book is my life in many ways. It's, um, it's my life as a historian, um, someone who entered the field of academia really relatively young when I went off to Chapel Hill to start on my MA and PhD. And at the same time that I did that, I also was a newly married pastor's wife. Um, Ten days before I started grad school, I married my husband, who was an ordained Southern Baptist minister. And he went off to start seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary um, in the heyday of Paige Patterson while I was in a medieval and women's history program at Chapel Hill. And so this book is those two worlds together that I have lived in. Um, And they also are, this book in fact, is really how I have thought through um, these two different worlds while teaching Um, primarily women's history courses at Baylor. And so a lot of my thought process on how I put this book together is through the way I constructed my lectures and have been teaching students at Baylor since 2008. Wow. So this is kind of the preparation, the incubation, but what what pushed you over the edge? What, What was it that compelled you to compose the book? What was the trigger as it were? So I've, I've told people I'm a really happy academic. I never really wanted to be in center stage except for in the classroom. Um, I was happy having my books sell, you know, to a hundred libraries and that's about it. 
<laughs> you know, that's success as an academic. So uh, this type of book was just never on my radar. It wasn't until the events of 2016, when my personal life, um, when my husband was fired from his position, um, when we began to put, ask questions about women in ministry, and when also at the same time, um, when Donald Trump, I mean, that's the truth of it, was elected. And suddenly I realized that this problem, that um, this question of women in ministry and women's roles in the church and how these attitudes that women are to be under the leadership of men, how this doesn't stay confined to our churches and our homes. It spills out into our attitudes. And the only way I could really make sense of how my evangelical community supported someone like Trump um, whose attitudes towards women were um, just appalling. Um, and then as well, of course, my own personal experience when my husband was fired, I realized that this was a problem bigger than me. And more and more evidence began coming out when we saw the sex abuse scandals and you know just the revelations in the Houston Chronicle and in other places in the SBC. And of course, the SBC's response um, to what happened, it just all, I was just, my thoughts were something has to be done. And it occurred to me that I had the credentials and the experience and the faith, because my faith has never wavered in this, to do something about it. And so I began writing some blog posts that got the attention of an editor. And that was sort of how the making of biblical womanhood came to be. I didn't mention this by way of introduction, although I could have. Beth is a regular blog poster on The Anxious Bench, which is a religious history blog on Pathios. Mm -hmm. And she has also had the opportunity to write with some degree of regularity for both Christianity Today and for the Washington Post. So there are many venues that you encounter Beth uh, in, uh, in writing, but uh, we're trying to get you to take up and read this book. <laughs> so uh, Beth, take us on a tour. Uh, yeah. Not everyone has uh, been privileged like I am. So we won't get down in the weeds uh, of, and, and we, we don't want to spoil, uh, we don't want to spoil everyone's uh, uh, appetite before they have a chance to uh, uh, quote uh, in Revelations terms, uh, eat this book. But, um, uh, but take us on a tour of uh, the making of biblical womanhood. What, what's the burden of the mm -hmm. book? And then uh, how do you seek to make your case? Because yeah. you're, you're, it, it's a composite case that you're building and you have a thesis to argue. So share with the folks what you're doing. So Todd, this is the easiest thesis that I have ever written when I think about all my work. And my thesis is simply that biblical womanhood, this concept that women are divinely ordained to be under the authority, the spiritual headship of their husbands, as well as male authority within the church, that this concept is not biblical. Um, this is a concept that as a historian, we can trace where it came from, um, we can trace it, you know, throughout from the ancient world all the way up to the modern world. And even though biblical womanhood itself, which is, you know, this term that didn't appear until the 1970s, and then it began to be reimagined with the term complementarianism, which also didn't really appear. Uh, Todd could probably correct me on this, but I think the 90s is when we first start seeing the word complementarianism appear. This is a very modern 
but biblical womanhood itself is just a um, sort of as my as my mom would say, you know, same song, different verse of patriarchy. And patriarchy is something that has been around this um, I, this idea that women are less valuable than men and that they are not capable of leading in the same way that men are. This is not a Christian idea. Um, this is a human idea that was born in the very beginning of civilization and it just gets reinvented. And so what I tried to do in the making of biblical womanhood was to show people how it gets reinvented. Um, that this is not something that even though we have a new word for it now, um, that it is not really anything new but at the same time, it is not the, you know, one of the claims of complementarianisms is that, um, is that women's subordination is written into the stars. This is something that Elizabeth Elliot said, and it's been picked up by a lot of folk. Um, and that on the one hand, they are right about that because it's patriarchy. Um, but on the other hand, they are wrong that this is something that is written into the Bible, that this is something that has been maintained or tried to maintain consistently throughout church history. And one of the things that I really tried to do is to show you how, how, how the church's attempts to subordinate women have not been consistent. They actually change and they change according to our cultural circumstances. Um, so patriarchy is reshaped you know, a friend of mine told me, and I use this phrase in the book, patriarchy is a shapeshifter, and it shapeshifts throughout Christian history, which shows us that it's not made by God, because God doesn't shapeshift, <laughs> humans shapeshift, and so it's rooted in human culture. Is that helpful, Todd? It's very helpful. So maybe uh, a couple of probes into the book and some mm -hmm. of kind of between the bookends where yeah. you're able to say, you know, on the one hand, this was my experience in this congregation. On the other hand, this was my experience as a, uh, a young uh, university student. But uh, in between, uh, kind of give us a couple of forays into the, uh, into the contents, Beth. Sure. So one of the big pieces that, you know, of course, I'm, I'm talking to you who uh, are a <laughs> biblical scholar, and I don't have to tell you that biblical scholars have for years been almost screaming that, you know, the subjugation of women, the interpretation of Pauline texts is not what Paul intended. And while there are different ideas about exactly what Paul is doing, there is a lot of consistency that Paul is not telling women to be silent for all time, um, because that is not that is not consistent with the biblical message, um, nor with the message of Paul. And so, for me, as both a scholar and a women's history professor, and a person, a woman in the church, this really became clear to me when I finally read Romans 16 with the blinders off. And I just realized just the, I mean, when you really read Romans 16, you suddenly realize because it, it talks about so many women. It talks about more women than men who are specifically named by ministry work. Um, and you see that, you know, if you think about the early church and you think about some of the most esteemed, I, I hate to use the word positions because the early church was nothing like the modern churches today. And I, you know, but the most esteemed maybe roles, although that's not really a biblical word either, but um, the, the roles of deacon, 
of apostle, of coworker, house church leader. Women are doing all these things. And so it's like this disconnect. It's like, why are we saying women can't stand behind a pulpit, which is a seventh, really a 17th century invention. I mean, there were lecterns and readers and stuff, but the pulpit and the sermon are uh, really an early, well, anyway, there's a lot of nuance with that. But when I think about how we use the pulpit today, uh, you know, it's such a modern invention. And so to say that women can't stand behind it and preach when women were apostles is, you know, clearly a disconnect between the Bible, what the Bible shows women doing and what the modern church shows women doing. So that was a big one for me. Um, Another big one was for me was with the Reformation when I really began to understand what the Reformation taught about women and compare that to the medieval world. And while though, although patriarchy existed in the medieval world and women mostly couldn't be leaders in the church, there was a loophole. I call it the medieval loophole. And the medieval loophole was that the reason women couldn't preach and teach in the medieval world was because their bodies were seen as flawed. And so if women could overcome the weakness of their sex, could overcome their bodies, they could. So we have female preachers. They're, uh, they're, not, the, um, they're not common, but they are they are there and they are supported by the church because the idea wasn't that women can't teach or preach for all time. It was that there was something about women's bodies that prevented. So if they can overcome their bodies, being nuns, being women religious, um, forsaking married life, then they could. They could rise to the level of preaching and teaching. But this loophole goes away with the Reformation because now the, the path to godliness for women is marriage. And In marriage with the Reformation too came this emphasis that women as, you know, their ideal state is to be married, which means their ideal state is to legally be under the authority of their husband. And this got married with Protestant theology. I mean, that's something we think that, um, we think that Protestant theology sort of, that this emphasis on marriage is something that was born in the Bible itself, but it was actually something that was born in the early modern world, and the Bible worked with it. The Bible was mapped on to the, the social world um, of the, the post-Reformation world, and so that's, I mean, that to me was really eye-opening when I realized um, that one of the reasons that women today can't really, there's no loophole for us, is because of this emphasis on marriage um, that had more to do with the cultural world um, in the 16th and 17th century than really with the Bible. Yeah. So that's it. there's two points for you. Well, and those are invaluable. And, and Beth, uh, you know, one of the real contributions of this volume is I think what you've done with the medieval and with the Reformation materials. Uh, but another perhaps surprise to even some of those who are listening is Paul is often perceived as the fall guy, as you have noted in your introduction to your chapter two, that uh, as you teach students, um, even here at Baylor, uh, Paul is perceived as the oppressor, uh, Mm -hmm. as the one who subjugates. But what you show with careful uh, inquiry and careful uh, study is uh, quite to the contrary. 
Yeah, I, I feel sorry for Paul, you know, I mean, on the one hand, I do think Paul was a very forceful personality. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would want to be the recipient of one of his letters personally. Um, but, you know, especially this, not one of the Corinthian letters. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, I, I'll take You're Romans. Right. Um, I, well, maybe I'll take Romans. But anyway, but yeah, no, exactly. Especially yeah. not Corinthians. But um I, you know, I often see Paul, and of course you're a Pauline scholar, and so I kind of feel a little, uh, but Paul is kind of a pragmatist. I mean, his goal is to get the gospel out there and to get the work done. And his goal is to use the people that God has gifted. And I mean, that's one of the messages, it seems to me, if you just read Paul as a coherent, um, you know, all of his message, I mean, Paul is saying, you are the body. Yes. You all work together. No one's more important. You have different roles. There is no gender there is, when he talks about the different roles, gender is never tied to it. Yeah. It never said, you know, he says, we all do these things. No one's more important. Do what God has called you to do. And so it's just so shocking to me that here we are in this, um, you know, in the 21st century and we're saying, oh, well, Paul said that, but that's not really what it means. It really means that men can do all these roles, but women can only do some of them despite what Paul, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like, um, it's amazing to me. Yeah. And so the so-called plain sense of the text and certain people gravitate to the passages where there are prohibitions, right? Uh, whether it's 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy 2 in particular, mm -hmm. but they don't put all the text on the table. And right. as a result, uh, as you've suggested, Beth, Romans 16, which is absolutely essential, gets lost in the shuffle. Yep. Um, especially when you're reading Bible translations that turn Junia into well-known to the apostles instead of prominent among the apostles. Yes. Um, you know, when you do those, I, I call it the little stories. When I talk to my students, I'm like, you know, the big story of the Bible always gets through no matter what version you read, what translation, but little stories are significant and they mostly affect our practice in the church. And those little stories of changing who Junia is has the, the purpose behind them has been to keep women out of ministry. So. Yeah. And even when we think about uh, women in the role of deacons, it's mm -hmm. fascinating that uh, although Phoebe is called a diaconos, it's typically rendered servant. Mm -hmm. And this then is used to suggest that that office within contemporary context is uh, gender specific. You know, I always, it's so funny to me when we think about, you know, I'm like, I wonder what people think women were doing in the first century church. I mean, do they really think they were like baking cookies and putting out that, you know, I'm just like, that's, if you know, <laughs> I'm just like our cultural understanding it's, is so is so, um, you know, skewed when we think about women in the first century world, so. Yeah. So Beth, this serves as a suitable segue to this question. So um, obviously um, authors, uh, scholars write books, uh, not, not just because they need to fill time. You're a very busy associate <laughs> dean of a thriving <laughs> graduate school, yes. at, uh, an aspiring research one university. I, I mean, it's not that you quote have to do this, but yeah, you, you had to do it. It's, it's, it's a fire in your bones. And so mm -hmm. here's my question. Um, what do you hope this work will actually achieve? I mean, it has a telos, it has a goal, it right. has to end in an aim. 
So when I suddenly realized I, I couldn't not speak anymore, that I had to talk, that I had to tell people what history showed us and that it was a different message than what our evangelical churches were telling us. Um, the main thing that I really wanted people to hear, especially women. I mean, this book, I hope it is valuable for men. I am talking to men, but in many ways, I'm trying to reach the heart of women, women who have been silenced in churches for so long, women who have felt like when they even try to question or say, is this really right? That the, the response that they are told, I mean, essentially they're told that if you go down that path, you will lose your faith. And that if you go down that path, that you are no longer biblically faithful and that you are, I mean, women have been silenced. You know, I, there's a reason these texts are called the texts of terror for women because they literally silence us in the church. Um, and it causes, you know, I'm a woman who's lived it. And I have lived through the emotional turmoil and stress that this has done to me for years and years. I want those women to know that you can be biblically faithful and not by complementarianism. I want them to know, you know, even if they are not sure where they land on this, that you can be biblically faithful and question it. Um, that you can be biblically faithful and listen to a woman preach from behind the pulpit. And so that's really what I want women to hear is that this is not a line of heresy and that women have been preaching, teaching, and leading in the church and used by God for centuries. Yeah. And I want them to know that. And so Beth, this uh, nicely um, uh, leads to uh, another question, a next question, and it's this. So to those who still regard complementarianism, which um, some equate and uh, you show with patriarchy. Um, so for those who still regard complementarianism to be gospel truth as you yourself once did, yep. and you, 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 you share that, um, what are the words of caution? What are the words of wisdom? And, and you started a bit of this, what, what are the words of encouragement mm -hmm. uh, that you would offer, especially to this group who, who are or is where you were? Yeah, so I think I'll start with the question that I started with, and it really was when I became a scholar and I realized that becoming a scholar isn't knowing everything, it's asking questions. Mm -hmm and wanting to learn and not being afraid of changing your mind. Um, and so I think, you know, this is the question that I posited in chapter two, and it's what if you're wrong? Yeah. Um, I want people who, you know, if you think that the Bible teaches that women cannot preach or lead, what if you're wrong about that? Have you really considered the alternative? Have you actually been reading voices that, um, that are biblically faithful scholars like you, Todd, <laughs> who argue something different about Paul? Um, you know, are you only reading uh, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and Desiring God? Um, if so, why don't you read something else? <laughs> are you willing to consider that you are wrong? And even if you come down to the same place at the end, you at least will come down with a better understanding of why people disagree with you and that the people who disagree with you are faithful Bible followers too. 
They are not in the camp of heresy and you cannot exclude them. Um, you know, one of the things I think is one of the things that um, that complementarians often say, they say, look, if you start believing that women can preach and teach, then that's going to push you off into the, you know, very liberal progressive world. And part of me is thinking, I'm like, you know what, if there was a place for women in middle ground churches, if we, you know, we are forced out because no one will take us even though we are biblically faithful. And it seems to me that this is not God's problem. This is the church's problem. And what if the church realized that gender roles is not written into the gospel, that the gospel of message is about Jesus. It's not about us. Um, so that would be, I think the encouragement for women too, is that you're not alone. I keep hearing this from so many women who are like, I felt like something was wrong with me because I would listen to the sermon and I would read my Bible and I would think that's not what the Bible says. And they, they kept it inside and they felt like something was wrong with them. And I want them to know they're not alone, that women have been questioning patriarchy for centuries. And I talk about some of those women in my book um, because women have always seen a disconnect between the patriarchal systems of the world and what Jesus tells us yes. in the Bible. Yes. So. so the slippery slope argument is uh, really kind of a scare tactic that is sometimes employed. And isn't it interesting that uh, the apostle to the apostles <laughs> was Mary Magdalene. So, I know. So she was entrusted with the uh, gospel that Jesus is not only crucified, but he's raised, which continues to be the core of our shared faith. And Beth, this seems to me to be so valuable to simply say once again to one another, uh, let's, let's be those uh, who are seeking to be faithful mm -hmm. while seeking uh, understanding. Yes. I, I love, uh, we, we, sh we share an affection for, um, uh, for uh, English scholarship, and one of the, um, the English uh, scholars that has most impacted me was the 1800 scholar, biblical scholar called J.B. Lightfoot. Yes. And, and Lightfoot talks about the highest reason and the fullest faith. I think sometimes we want to divorce kind of head and heart, but what you do in this book is you say, no, actually the two uh, can go quite nicely uh, together. Well, Beth, um, so, I mean, this, this seems almost the wrong question to ask, but I'm going to ask <laughs> it anyway. We'll, we'll circle back around here in a minute. So after people uh, uh, buy this book, uh, what's the next book that they're going to be able to buy by Beth Barr? So they may not want my immediate next one. <laughs> I have an academic, I have my next academic monograph that I put on hold. Yeah. Um, it's called Women in English Sermons. And I put it on hold to write this book. I would like to finish that. I've made that, you know, and so I have that at pretty close, although I pilfered some of it for the making of biblical womanhood. Uh, so I'm going to have to go back and, and do some work to it. But I'd like to finish that. But I actually have already started talking, um, you know, the, I, I will confess in the beginning, my thought was I'm the making a biblical womanhood was sort of going to be my one hit trade yeah. press wonder and I was going to walk away and not worry about it again. Um, but some people have impressed upon me that I, that, that I can communicate things to yes. ordinary people and maybe I should consider doing that. 
So I do have a couple of ideas um, flowing out there that I've started talking with some editors about. And um, one of them is a follow-up to the making of biblical womanhood, because there is a lot of stuff. They gave me a word limit that was really hard to keep to. And so I have a lot of things that didn't make it into this book that I actually could bring together um, into sort of a follow-up to it. And then the other idea that I've gotten a lot that I've, you know, also have a lot of material for um, is, is a book for modern evangelicals on the reality of medieval Christianity, Um, sort of combating our, yeah, you know, taking a lot of our myths that we have. I mean, I think about the Capitol Hill Baptist Church Sunday School material, which I mean, is, oh my gosh, um, you know, about the medieval world. And so we have so many myths and so much misunderstanding. And so it would be kind of fun to tackle that. And I have a lot of fun personal stories about sermons that I've listened to and things that I've been in, um, uh, misunderstandings about the medieval world. Uh, so that that's another fun project that I'm considering as well. It, uh, it sounds like there will be little rest for the weary. <laughs> well, I'm going to take a little bit of a rest first. <laughs> so, well, Beth, this has been delightful, and uh, the truth is, is that uh, I would love for this to go on forever, but we can have cups of coffee just like we did a cup of tea in Oxford a few years ago, Uh, but um, maybe for our friends who are joining us, listening in, uh, a good place to draw this particular conversation to a close uh, would be by simply asking you to share um, with those listening Mm -hmm. what tangible steps Uh, practical steps, concrete action steps they might be able to take to encourage women in leadership in general and women in ministry in particular, including pastoral ministry and pulpit ministry. I think one of the best things you can do in your church is to get women behind the pulpit. Invite them in as guest folk and let your congregation see them. Um, I mean, this is, I think, in fact, I just wrote a blog post on this. I think a big problem in evangelical world is we don't see women and we can't imagine women in these places. But once we hear women and we're like, oh my gosh, God has gifted them in the same ways as men and we can learn from them and be edified by them. And so if you are in a position in a church where you can invite people in, invite women, invite them to preach from behind your pulpit, let people see that God calls women to. So I think that's a real easy step forward um, that we can all take in to help elevate women. And, and, And the other thing is, is make them Sunday school teachers of their own, don't make them be paired with a man, let them be the primary Sunday school teachers for some of your classes. And don't just put women in those classes, make them adult Sunday school teachers. That's another way that you can elevate their voices and let people in the congregation begin to realize that God calls women to you. So I mean, those are two very practical things that I think all of us can help do. Absolutely. And so um, I have Uh, two things that all of us can do too. Uh, So the first thing is, is that all of us uh, can go and buy this book and uh, take up and read uh, and begin conversations uh, and uh, see uh, what these conversation seeds uh, might uh, might do. And then uh, I love the ending of uh, Dr. Barr's book 
Uh, and it's the way she ends all of her classes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't still best thunder. So what do you tell your classes and what do you tell the folks after they finish reading this book, Beth? So I have been ending and I have no idea when I started doing it. Um, I think it's the restless nature of undergraduates in a class where they are so ready to leave at the end. And so I tell them to go be free. Um, and it seemed to me that that was a really good way to end this book because Jesus set women free a long time ago and it's time for the evangelical church to do so too. So go be free. Uh, there are all kinds of ways to end, but that's got to be about as good as any. Uh, and who the sun sets free is uh, free indeed. Uh, Paul can say to the Galatians that uh, you've been uh, uh, set free from the yoke of slavery. Uh, don't, don't be subject again to the same. Uh, in right. the same text, in the same text, he says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, mm -hmm. male and female. So, Grateful, Beth, for your work, for your friendship, your scholarship, your witness. Uh, it's winsome and, it, and, and it's needed. Uh, so um, just hear me say on the behalf of a lot of folks uh, who have tuned in today, uh, thank you. Thank and you. Uh, a word of encouragement to those um, who might be able to join us two weeks from now as we take up a conversation uh, of another Baylor colleague's volume, uh, Dr. Angela Williams Gorell's The Gravity of Joy. So um, tune in and uh, reach out uh, to Beth and once again, uh, buy her book. <laughs> take good Thank care. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks, bye-bye.